Our scripture reading this morning comes from Revelation chapter 7, verses 1 through 12. This is God's word. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed, 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. So ends the reading of God's word. At this time, children ages three through kindergarten are dismissed for the little landing. Good morning, Faith Family at the Landing. I am keenly aware of God's help in my need of it. Let's pray one more time. Bless, Lord, I pray the preaching of Revelation 7. I come to you a weak and broken sinner, forgiven and saved by grace, experiencing the victory of your help and your Holy Spirit, but weak and needy. Get me out of the way, speak plainly and clearly through Revelation 7 to the dear ones gathered in this room and those hearing by recording and live stream. Thank you for the power of this passage to encourage, to give hope, both to the early churches that it was at first written to and to all the churches since then, including us. Speak such encouragement and hope to us through this passage that we are ready to enter into the calling of your purified, forgiven, marshaled church militant in our day. We ask all this in Jesus' glorious name, our King, our champion. Amen. The unbelievers of the world who turn away and refuse the gospel, will despise with greater hatred the face and the reign and the salvation of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. Speaking to the Father, at the end of chapter 6, 
they said, For the great day of their wrath has come. Who can stand? Who can stand indeed? The great day of the wrath has come at the end of chapter 6, and all the unbelievers want the rocks and the mountains to fall on them because they say, we can't stand, no one can stand. Psalm 130 says, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? The answer, of course, is no one can stand. But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Nothing in the Bible makes sense unless we come to it fully agreeing that apart from Christ, I can do nothing. That if I were to stand in front of God, I have nothing to commend myself. I have no boast. I have no pride. I have no arrogance. I have no virtue or righteousness of my own. The reason why the Bible says in Psalm 130 and Revelation chapter 6, 17 says no one can stand is because apart from Christ, no one can stand before God. We are a sinful, broken, spiritually blind people. We're not okay. We're not good people. We can't stand before God. He forgives us according to the promise of Psalm 130. He forgives us in order that he might be feared. How does that work? It works like this. God forgives us that when we are forgiven, we recognize that there's forgiveness found in no one else and that all our sin is owing to his righteousness exposing it. And when we come to him and find forgiveness, we know he is the one who alone has the power, the goodness, the grace, and the freedom to forgive us of all our sins. And we fear him. It also works in the opposite way. If we turn from God, reject his forgiveness, we know that we ultimately will have to face him in eternal judgment. He forgives us so that we fear him. Here the passage Howard just read in chapter 7 is is an interlude in Revelation. Its events happen before the end of the world that we read about at the end of chapter 6. Remember at the end of chapter 6, there is the moon turning to blood and the sun going dark and, and the mountains and the, everything falls apart. The earth is collapsed. The cosmos collapses. But then look at verse 1 in chapter 7. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth. So now the earth is back. What does that mean? It means what happens in Revelation 7 is coming before the end vision of the end of chapter 6. In other words, There is an event that's happening here in chapter 7 that occurs before the final end of the world that the sixth seal has decreed. The question that the end of chapter 6 leads us to ask is, who can stand when that end comes? Who can stand? Can I stand? Can you stand? Can we at the landing or any church or any believer around the world stand and know that the destruction that is to come will not destroy us? Who can stand? I know that if I were to compare my life with those who are under that cosmic collapse at the end of chapter 6, I would not find my life holier, purer, or more worthy than theirs. Does that stun you? The people who will stand at the end of the world when final destruction comes are not in and of themselves holier, more pure, and more worthy than those who have rocks crushing them and the wrath of the Lamb destroying them. It makes me shudder. It causes me to quiver before the passage and to ask, 
with the final question of chapter 6. Who can stand, Lord? Who can stand? Who can conquer? We saw over and over in Revelation 2 and 3, the command to the churches was to conquer. And John is still writing to them, and he's giving them chapter 7 to help them conquer. How can I speak in such a way that you forget about me, you don't even look at me, you don't think about me anymore, and you rivet your attention on chapter 7, and you hear the Lord by the Holy Spirit in this passage saying to you, this is how you will conquer. This is how you will stand at the very end. Destruction. I have three questions. One, what is this ceiling that happens? Two, who are the 144,000? And three, how then shall we live? Those lead us up to taking together the Lord's table. One, what is this ceiling that happens? Look at verses one through three, especially verse one. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth. So there are angels standing on the earth. They stand before the Lamb. And we know that's a first answer to our question. Who can stand? Well, angels are standing. And in verse 11, the angels are standing as well. Read on, verse 2. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun. That makes us think there's a strong angel coming from the east. That's where the rising of the sun happens, maybe Palestine, with the seal of the living God. So this angel has something called the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice, so apparently he's a commanding angel over the other four, to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. So this is what's happening right before the end. This is what's happening all through this age we're in between the time of Christ's resurrection and elevation or ascension to the Father and His second coming. We're in this age when servants are being sealed Prior to the coming of the end, the winds are being held back. It's, it's a little bit like the, the horses at the Kentucky Derby where they're biting and gnawing and rearing up and they can't wait to run and yet strong trainers are holding them inside that cage before the bell goes off. These horses, the four horsemen we saw earlier, are, wanting, are eager to run with the four winds and cause the destruction on the earth. I take it that they are ridden by demons themselves. Verse 2 again, Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea. This is a reference to this moment in time before the collapse and destruction of the world when God is sealing. This is a glorious reality. He's sealing his servants Verse 3, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. It surely would have made the first readers think of Exodus 28. The first time sealing on the foreheads is mentioned. Listen to Exodus 28. You shall make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it like the engraving of a signet, saying, holy to the Lord. And you shall fasten it on the turban by a cord of blue, and it shall be on the front of the turban. It shall be on Aaron's forehead, the high priest. And Aaron shall bear any guilt from the holy things that the people of Israel consecrate as their holy gifts. It shall regularly be on his forehead that they may be accepted before the Lord. You see, we're priests. We have this seal on our forehead, whatever that is, and it 
points to the fact that Jesus Christ, our high priest, has made us by his death holy to the Lord. This seal, this preparation for the end, means that we believers surely will experience the difficulties and collapse at the end, but it will not harm us. It will not utterly destroy us. This seal is on our heads to protect us and keep us. In fact, the seal meant that very thing. It was a ruler's signet that went on what he owned and what he authenticated and what he was protecting. You can see that seal even as we look at the example of the scroll, which has seven seals on it. The word of God is protected by God. He watches over his word to perform it says Jeremiah chapter 1. The same way here we are sealed, held, kept, preserved. It's exactly what Revelation 3.10 says when we read the, the account to the church at Philadelphia. Because you have kept my word, I will keep you during the time of trial. Very plain, same teaching as we see here in Revelation chapter 7. This seal, then, is this protection, this authentication, this ownership that God puts over his people and protects them during the time of trial and difficulty that we're now in. You can find more about this seal when you look back to Ezekiel 9.4. Many interpreters point to this passage, and I found it very helpful. I'll read it for you. It's just one verse. Here, Ezekiel is being instructed by the Lord. He's He's told to pass through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. So here you have a passage from Ezekiel telling him to go find the people whose hearts are so in love with God that they groan and sorrow over sin. I groan and sorrow over my sin. I groan and sorrow over sin around me, not nearly as much as I should. I trust that if that is exactly what the seal is for, that the Lord will put inside of me and you such a groaning, such a sorrow for sin that he will put his mark, as it were, on our foreheads. Listen to Revelation 14, verse 1. Again, similar vocabulary to what we're reading here in chapter 7. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. So now we know this seal calls us to be or defines us as holy to the Lord. It it describes our hearts which groan in sorrow for sin in us and around us. And it is the name of Jesus and the father's name. So it defines the people who say Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus and the father are one. Yahweh and Jesus are the same God. That defines these marked ones. Many interpreters, and I find myself in agreement with them, would suggest that this outer mark isn't an actual tattoo or a branding that goes on your forehead. It's not an actual thing that could be uh, counterfeited or, or is just a surface outer mark, but rather that it's equated with Paul's teaching about the sealing of the Holy Spirit. Listen to this famous passage out of Ephesians 1. In him... You also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Now it becomes clear 
that we have the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit sets us apart as holy to the Lord. The Holy Spirit gives us a heart to grieve over our sin and the sins of others. The Holy Spirit is the one who helps us to see and love the idea that God the Father and God the Son are one in the same God with the Spirit. Paul elsewhere makes reference to the sealing. It's a common theme in Paul. I have so many passages, I won't read any more of them. But what you should know is that it seems to be this work that God is doing by his Holy Spirit as he saves people, he seals them. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're sealed. You're among these that are referred to here in Revelation 7 as those who are sealed and ready for the final destruction to come that will not ultimately harm you. Listen to 2 Corinthians 1, 20 through verse 22. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. There it is again. Sealed forever by God, sealed and preserved and protected through hardship and difficulties. Exactly what Jesus said would happen. He said in Matthew 24, verses 12, 13, and 14, he said, when the son of lawlessness is released in those days, most men's love will grow cold, but he who endures to the end will be saved. That enduring, that conquering, that standing is the same as we're talking about here. This sealing I don't know what it would be materially. I don't have an answer. Maybe you do. I'd be interested in hearing it. But I'd be cautious because the book of Revelation doesn't deal with material readings. It always deals with apocalyptic or symbolic readings. Surely the seal is what sets us apart as holy to the Lord. Surely the seal is what causes us to groan and ache over our sin and the sins of others. Surely this seal causes us to worship God through His Son Christ by the Spirit. And surely this seal sets us apart to be holy to him and serve him under the guarantee that we are his permanently. Now take this, this glorious image in Revelation 7 and bring it back to the lives of those persecuted early believers or maybe to the persecuted church around the world or to your life. Think about the fact that you're sealed. It's such a hope. If you're in a battle with sin, if you're in a battle with discouragement, if you're in a battle with fear or shame or guilt, if you're in a battle with tempting to do harm to yourself, please reach out to God and reach out to someone and say, please pray for me, I'm struggling. I need to be reminded that God has sealed me in Jesus Christ and that I'm safe from all harm that will ultimately seek to destroy me. If you've never been sealed... This is obviously an invitation and a call like no other. This is an invitation and a call for you to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and say, Holy Spirit, would you now seal me? Would you do what the Bible repeatedly says you do? Would you come and seal me so that as trial and tribulation uh, mount up in my lifetime and we go all the way through this Revelation 6 unfolding all the way to the very end when things grow their most intense would you keep us? Would you keep me? Would you keep those around me who are trusting in you? Would you cause unbelievers that I know to repent and turn to you and be sealed themselves? 
everything we do here as a church, from our songs to our sermons, from our Sunday school to our syrup on the men's breakfast pancakes, is meant to help you say, I want to be sealed by the Holy Spirit and ready for the end to come. Question number two, who are the 144,000? Let me give you four reasons for my understanding, a common understanding of the 144,000, not mine uniquely, but mine with the grand deep water stream of interpretation. The 144,000 here are a, is a word picture rich with Old Testament allusion to the entire church of Jesus Christ. That's my reading of it. Here's four reasons why. One, We've already seen and celebrated in chapter 5 how the Lion of Judah, the Lamb of God, the Root of Jesse, three titles for Christ, are all owing to Jewish imagery. Judah, Lamb of God, sacrificial lamb, Root of Jesse, David's father Jesse, all are Jewish imagery now applied to every tribe, tongue, people, and nation in Revelation 5. We who are among the every tribe, tongue, people, language, and nation, not Jewish in our ethnic origin, are those who are served by, saved by, shepherded by, loved by the Lamb of God, the Root of Jesse, the Lion of Judah. When he cares for his people, he calls them servants. The very first verse of Revelation says, to all the servants, the very closing Words of Revelation in chapter 22 refer to the servants who gather around the throne to worship the Lamb. This is the Jewish imagery of Lion of Judah, Lamb of God, and Root of Jesse, all saving men, women, and children into the true Israel from around the world and throughout time. Second reason, the 144,000 is a very important number. It's a number that I take to mean the collective church militant. Here's why. You can see that it's obviously 12 times 12 times 1,000. 12, I take, refers to the sum of the total of the tribes of Israel, the ethnic Israel. But the next 12 that it's multiplied by, I take to be the reference to the apostles, the 12 apostles. I get it from Revelation 21, verse 12. The new Jerusalem has a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gate, 12 angels, and the gates of the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates, on the north, three gates, on the south, three gates, and on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So you see this picture in Revelation is meant to have us think about that 144,000 not as a specific material number. That's the way a sort of a modern materialist mind likes to read it, but that's not the way the early church would have read it. And we don't want to read it differently than they would have. We want to look at it and say, this is all believing Israel and all believing apostles and those who follow in the teaching of the apostles. In other words, this is the church perfectly collected. What about the thousand? Why is it multiplied times a thousand? Well, I discovered something as I was studying this passage this week. I didn't realize this, but almost every time the Old Testament describes a number with a thousand in it, like 33,000 or 6,000, anytime thousand is the number, it's referring to a census for gathering soldiers for war. And I thought, really? I wonder if that's true. And I looked up a whole bunch of them. Oh, yep, it's the census for seeing how many soldiers are available for war. And I realized, oh, sure. 
When, when so many interpreters are telling me to look at 144,000 as a reference to God assembling the perfect army marshaled from the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles of the Lamb gathered together ready to worship the Lord in all their warrior array. Not one is missing because the number is perfect. 12 times 12 and 1,000 is a perfect number in, in the Jewish mindset. And here it is, the church gathered, not one is lost, not one has defected, not one has died, not one has turned away. The church is perfectly gathered here from Israel, from all the nations, in marshaled military array. That's why I titled my sermon, The Church Secure and Militant. We are sealed Believers in Jesus Christ are secure, and now we are marshaled together for war to fight against all these demonic forces that even the Lamb and His sixth seal is releasing on the earth, and to fight against those who have chosen to stand as rebels and revolutionaries against the reign of God. Israel as a name, here's a third reason why I take this church, this reference of 144,000 to be the church triumphant and the church militant is because Israel is used so often in the New Testament as a summary for the whole of the people of God. Philippians 3.3, For we, Paul says, are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God. He also says in Galatians 3.7, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Or Galatians 6.16, And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them, upon the Israel of God. In fact... No verse in Revelation ever uses Israel to refer to just national ethnic Israel. doesn't happen in the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation always uses Israel or references to Israel, much like it uses other references to cities and nations like Babylon and Sodom, in a symbolic, spiritually loaded way to teach a lesson about the glories of God and the gospel. You can even look with me, here's a fourth reason, to the actual list of tribes in verses 5 through 8 in chapter 7. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah. That's interesting. Why would Judah be listed first and not Reuben? Judah wasn't the oldest. But the Messiah has come out of Judah. We're worshiping the Lamb of Judah. So in, in intention to teach us something about the glories of the gospel, this Lion of Judah that all the nations come under is now given first place among the list. Reuben second, Gad and Asher, Naphtali, and then there's Manasseh with an Egyptian mother according to Genesis 41 verse 50. And yet included, there's Simeon and the tribe of Levi, interesting as well, a priestly tribe, but had no land allotment, so not listed often in the Old Testament lists of tribes, but here listed because we are all a tribe or a company of priests to the Lord. Issachar, Zebulon, Joseph, and Benjamin are all sealed. But notice how Dan, one tribe, is missing. The tribe that gave itself over to idolatry, it's not there. So it isn't just ethnic Israel that he's concerned about. He turns away from uh, an entire tribe that gave itself to idolatry, according to Judges 18. And he welcomes in even the child of an Egyptian woman in Manasseh. Who then are the 144,000? I take it to be. 
an encouragement to the churches in Asia Minor, an encouragement to us, that this is my church militant. This is my people I've gathered. These are the sealed ones standing before me. These are the sealed ones who cannot lose in the war that they will engage in. If you knew you were sealed, if you're sitting here today, you're, you, you battle with struggles with sin, you battle with struggles with discouragement or temptation, just like you and me, we will always do until uh, Christ returns. And yet you know deep down inside that you are sealed, the Holy Spirit is at work in your life, even the conviction that you feel for sin is a work and an evidence of the Holy Spirit in your life. And you say, I will be among that number, that perfect marshaled church militant where not one is lost, that 144,000. How is it that I should live? How do I come to the table? How do I leave out of this worship service? How do I go into relationships, conversations? How do I engage with those around me? Three brief answers to that final question. First, all believers in Jesus Christ in the church militant are called to a wartime lifestyle, to a wartime posture in this world. This world is not our home, as we often sing. We're to be in it, but not of it. We know that we will have trouble and tribulation in the world because in John 16, Jesus said, in this world you will have much trouble. We won't go to heaven, in other words, enjoying the fact that we're there having escaped the life Jesus led. We will enjoy heaven because we will have, be there having escaped hell and being in the presence of the Lord and enjoying him forever. But we will not be there thinking we escaped the life Jesus led. In fact, we will follow, and as the world hated him, they will hate us. Albert Moeller said recently on one of his briefing podcasts, we, the evangelical church in America, did not go out looking for a culture war, but one has found us. It's not going to go back to normal. It's not going to go back to Judeo-Christian normal where politics and medicine and school and, and religion and finances and entertainment are all going to just tame back down to some mid-20th century normalcy. That's not where it's going. The war against our minds and our hearts and our souls out in the culture is going to get worse. We're told it will, and it will come to its final climax at that final destruction of Revelation 6. It's a danger for us, isn't it, to think there's so much acrimony, there's so much disagreement, there's so much conflict in the world that I'm going to stand apart from it and I'm going to be in the disinterested observer mode. I'm going to be the one who's not got a foot in either camp of important issues. I'm just going to stand back and I'm just going to watch and observe. I don't really have an investment in either side. That's actually a a dishonest position. Why is it? Because some issues, many issues, are so clearly invested in in Scripture that to be silent on them is to dishonor the Scriptures that teach on them. To be silent on them is to dishonor the Lord whose word directly counters the evil that's being pressed upon us. 
Young men and young women and children, old men and old women, we're going to have to stand up and simply say in boldness, this is not right. We're going to have to be like John the Baptist who took an open stance clearly when Herod took his brother Philip's wife Herodias and he said openly and publicly, you can't do that. It's against the law. And he was thrown in prison and ultimately lost his head for it. Where is the boldness? It comes from having read Revelation 7 and the whole of the Bible saying, I'm sealed and I'm a part of the church militant and I'm going to speak boldly into this culture and into this moment. You have no idea how many times I talk with pastors and they say to me, you're going to divide your church if you talk about issues that have become political. If you take up issues of uh, sexual purity as the Bible teaches it, or, or if you take up issues of abortion as the Bible teaches on it, or if you take up issues of, of being stewards of our culture or stewards of our, our environment or other issues, and there's many, if you take up these issues where the Bible speaks to them directly and specifically, you will divide your congregation and you will grieve your congregation and you will lose your pastoral ministry. Don't focus on those. In fact, I've heard one very famous pastor who has a radio program say, you'll never hear me talk about those topics, and he lists them as things he won't ever address. The ones I just alluded to and several more that the Bible speaks directly to. I think we've done that for far too long. I think we should preach and teach scared. I think we should open our mouths and speak the truth in love humbly and admittedly fearful. In medicine, in school education, in the church, online, in politics. Oh, I would pray that the next mayor of Duluth would come from this congregation. Is that crazy? Oh, my goodness. If we speak boldly as the church militant sealed and among that 144,000 secure in the Lord, we will quickly have to realize that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, that we're actually dealing with a spiritual enemy. You know this passage, don't you? Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand. See how the theme is so clear? It's all about standing. It's all about the ones who can stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Believers are priceless for the conflicts that, engage, that we engage in in the world because we're the only ones with the Spirit of God within us helping us to look with x-ray eyes through the people who oppose us and see the Spirit behind them. We're the only ones who know they're captured to do the devil's will. 2 Timothy 2.25 We should long for and, and reach out and be eager to see them rescued from the cap capturing captain, captive grip of the devil and speak with authority and with sharpness and even with hatred against the devil himself. So we must 
conquer, overcome, and stand against the culture where it rejects Christ. We must also recognize that we're not dealing with flesh and blood and human beings primarily, but with a spiritual realm, and we should engage in countering and conquering the enemy. 1 John 3, 8, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. We would fight the world, and we would fight the enemy behind the world, but ultimately that leads us to the most important fight of all, doesn't it? The deeper battle of our own flesh. We must daily fly to Christ for his cleansing blood and righteousness. Listen to a verse that we'll spend more time on the next time we're in Revelation 7, verse 14. I'll just share it with you now to prepare us for the table. John records what one of the elders said to him. He said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. He was speaking of all the host of heaven, the full number of Jew and Gentile members of the church who've been redeemed by God's salvation, cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. The first battle on earth is to conquer the indwelling sin that rages within us all. It is the lifelong battle, but victory is possible even assured. Because we're sealed, because we're among the church militant, we can engage in all three levels of battle. Living the Christian life is basically saying, Lord, please fight for me when I am weak. Please come and struggle for me and within me and give me your victory. My pastor of years ago, John Piper, prayed one time and it was recorded, Fight for us, O God, that we do not drift numb and blind and foolish into vain and empty excitements. Life is too short, too precious, too painful to waste on worldly bubbles that burst. Heaven is too great. Hell is too horrible. Eternity is too long that we should putter around on the porch of eternity. Conquer the flesh. Conquer the devil conquer the world by trusting in Christ alone as one sealed by the Holy Spirit and assured that you are among the church militant. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for Revelation 7. I thank you for glorious realities that seem to be just bursting off of the page for us to enjoy. I thank you for its preparation and ability to set us to now worship you at the table by savoring this bread and this cup. Let every sealed believer enjoy it now at this moment. Let them feast at the table, being reminded that this bread represents a body broken by you on the cross that ours would be made whole. That this cup represents your blood poured out on the cross that my sin would be cleansed away. And that I would be given a victory over the battles that rage within me. Would you bless each one in this room to know that joy, to know that victory, to know that cleansing, to know that security and assurance that Revelation 7 labors with pictures so diligently to proclaim. Lord, I thank you now for the opportunity to quiet ourselves and prepare ourselves to receive these elements, having discerned the body and so receive them in a worthy manner. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.